Father in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ and Holy Spirit before the throne. We ask for your insight and inspiration. We ask, Father, as we read through your word tonight and cover these couple of chapters, that history will become our story. And we would recognize it for what it is. And so, Lord, we come before you. We open our hearts, our minds, our spirits. And we say, speak to us, Holy Spirit of the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 10, says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Chapter 3, verse 2, says, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Chapter 3, verse 11 says, I am coming quickly. Jesus speaking in each one of these verses. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Verse 12 of that same chapter. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne also as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne throne. There is, throughout the New Testament scriptures, there is a running theme that we hear again and again and again, and it's summed up in phrases like this, be faithful, wake up, hold fast, overcome. Why? It's because I believe Jesus knows our tendency to settle. And we've talked about this, we covered some of this on Sunday, the tendency to get comfortable in the world, the tendency to be comfortable with, with our culture. To, to be just accepting things as they are. Jesus says, overcome. He says, wake up. Be faithful. Hold fast. Casting Crowns has a song on a recent CD of theirs called Slow Fade. Perhaps you've heard it. Slow Fade. The chorus of the song reads this way. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. This is at issue when we come to this next stage in Israel's history. It is a slow fade. As we open up to chapter 7 of the book of Ezra, 57 years have passed. We've we've traveled 57 years just from Sunday. I don't know if you realize that. Going from the end of chapter 6 on Sunday morning to the beginning of chapter 7 tonight, 57 years. It's quite a gap in time. It's quite a leap. Chapter 6 ended there with the second temple on the third day of the month of Adar, 515 B.C. Now as we open up chapter 7, it is 485 B.C. Now for you Bible students, you might want to take note of this. Between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Ezra, the story of Esther takes place. In that time frame, in those years, that's when Esther is coming before the king in Persia and before the throne and and the whole story that we're going to come to probably about December or so of, of this season, Lord willing. But it's been almost 80 years, once we get to chapter 7, almost 80 years since the exiles first returned to the land. Remember, they spent 21 years in building the temple. 80 years since their return. And it wasn't an easy return. We know that through hardships and struggle and challenges against them. And with the encouragement and exhortation of Zerubbabel and the high priest Yeshua and Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, the people banded together. They didn't compromise and they rebuilt the second temple. They got the job done. Do you remember what happened when the temple was completed? The outcome was joy. 
Joy in Jerusalem. Joy in, in, in the house of the Lord. Remember from Sunday. Joy in the house of the Lord. And joy at the table of the Lord as they celebrated Passover together for the first time. And joy among the people of the Lord as they all gathered in celebration and feast and festival. And Ezra chapter 6 verse 22 reads that the Lord had caused them to rejoice. But in the 57 or so years in between, that rejoicing has given way to a settling. They've gotten back to the business of life. See, they came off the high of the retreat of the, of the joyful conference there in Jerusalem as they came together to worship and fellowship. And now life has settled in. Now I know that never happens to you. But it's certainly what's going on in Israel. That's the lay of the land as Ezra comes back into the land himself. Now, now they don't return to idolatry, and that's a good thing. But they don't continue in passionate faith either. The sacrifices, they continue. The temple services will go on. Church gets back to usual. But the people are comfortable, and eventually compromise begins to undermine their faith. So what does the Lord do? He sends the Helper. God sends Ezra. In the beginning of chapter 7, we meet this man, Ezra. God calls him to kick the coals and stoke the fires of a passionate faith. To stir the people up. As he will do from time to time in our own lives. Chapter 7 and verse 1. Now after these things and the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zerahiah, and the son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, and the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Now this is a, a brief, it's a quick kind of view of, of the genealogy of this man Ezra. It's not complete, but it's his genealogy. Now, this is the same Artaxerxes in verse 1. Just by note, who signs a decree later on. A decree sending a man named Nehemiah back into the land. And that's highly significant. We'll talk about this when we get to Nehemiah, the next book. Why is it highly significant? Because it's the signing of that decree that kicks off God's clock with Israel. Daniel's 77s. Daniel's 70 Shabuah, seven year time periods. It's the greatest prophecy in the Old Testament. We'll get to that as, as we get into Nehemiah. But the name here to note is Ezra. Ezra is the key figure here, the key player. And especially in chapter 7 and 8, we're going to look at and understand more about this man. Some things to jot down. I'll give you five things tonight that you might jot down about the person of Ezra. Now, as you jot this down, remember, this is not to be impressed with the man. It's to give a view of the Spirit. Now watch this. Number one, Ezra is a descendant of passion. A descendant of passion. Verses 1 through 5, they give this abbreviated uh, genealogy of the Aaronic priesthood. Not erroneous or ironic, but Aaronic. The priesthood that began with Aaron, brother of Moses, the first high priest. You track all the way down the line and you get to Ezra. Why didn't Ezra go back with the first group of, of exiles, though? Well, for one thing, he would have been pretty young. It was 60 years earlier. 80 years earlier when they actually started heading back. But for another thing, you know, Ezra's there in, in Babylon, and there's no temple in Jerusalem, so there's no role for the high priest. Now there is a temple. Now there's a role. 
Ezra is on that lineage, that great line of, of the high priests. And it's a passionate line. And he, he lists some very passionate, fiery dudes on this list. And you can go back, and, and I'd encourage you in your own study to go down these names and look at what they did and who they were. There are several interesting ones. Probably the most interesting, with the exception of Aaron, is one standout. And it's very interesting because it's very similar to what Ezra will face in chapters 9 and 10, although probably a little more PG-13. And that's the man Phineas. Psalm 106 verse 30 says, Phineas stood up and interposed, and so the plague was stayed. And it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. Phineas stood up and interposed. How did Phineas interpose? That's an awfully cleaned up word. Because the King James translates, and more effectively I believe translates, not interposed, but Phineas stood up and executed judgment. How did he do that? Well, you may remember the story. It's in Numbers chapter 25, around about verses 7 through 11. The people are a mess. Moses and all of the leaders of Israel are gathered together and they are weeping and they are praying to the Lord because the sons of Israel are beginning to marry out with some other women outside of Israel. They're starting to bring in some of these others. And a man at this very time, while Moses and the guys are weeping there, flaunts in broad daylight right in front of them, brings a woman, a foreign woman with him right in front of them. You can almost see him going, yeah, whatever, what are you going to do about it? And takes her into his tent. What does Phineas do? Phineas in the line of the priesthood stands up, grabs a spear, runs into the tent and stabs them both through into the ground. Sin on a stick. That's what I like to call that. And this is reckoned to him as righteousness? This brutal, bloody action? Absolutely. Because what this guy was doing was mixing in and drawing in where Israel eventually would go, and that's idolatry. Gentlemen, you know when you marry a woman, she tends to have some influence. Remember that line from Big Fat Greek Wedding? The man may be the head of the household, but the woman's the next. She can turn the head any way she wants. Okay, there is a, an, an incredible influence of a wife on the husband. Same way the other way around. Which is why Paul says don't be unequally yoked with a believer with an unbeliever. Don't, don't do that because you're going to find yourself in a struggle. Well, Phineas is an interesting man. And you might go back. In fact, if you want to understand that a little better, you can listen to the teaching. It's online, Numbers 25. And we talk very specifically about why is it that this is reckoned to Phineas as righteousness. But we can know this. Phineas was a passionate priest. Ezra is too. Ezra is of that line and that same passion translates now to this man because what you're going to see, I'll give you a heads up in chapters 9 and 10, we'll get to it next week, you're going to see the people starting to intermarry again. And Ezra is distraught. And Ezra calls for a very serious stopping of what's going on. We'll get to that next week. He's like Phineas, a descendant of passion. That same heated, passionate, fiery sense of righteousness is in this man, Ezra. Secondly, Ezra is a doer of the word. Ezra is a doer of the word. Look at verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The word skilled there is mahir. Mahir means diligent, ready, practiced. He is a doer of the word, a diligent man of the word. Reminds me of what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent 
to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Ezra is that kind of guy. He has the word down pat. As a matter of fact, the Talmud tells us that Ezra had the entire Torah memorized. Genesis through Deuteronomy, verse by verse, all five books. He could call up any section at any time. He was so well versed. in He's a doer of the word. Ezra also is one who presided along with a group, the original group of 120 men. Ezra was among that group who presided over the compilation of the Hebrew Bible. The first time all the scrolls were brought together as, as one unified whole, Ezra was part of that. Even more so. Ezra, who, as James says, James 1.22, prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Ezra was such a doer of the word that he himself wrote huge sections of the Hebrew Bible that now we have studied. First and Second Chronicles. The book of Ezra. And the longest chapter in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. Ezra wrote all of that. And if you read Psalm 119, if you're familiar with it, you know it is the psalm that extols the Word. That lifts up the Word of God. This is Ezra writing this. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Ezra is a doer of the Word. Now Peter says in 1 Peter 1.21, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This Ezra was a spirit-filled man, so spirit-filled that he actually was writing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the books that I just mentioned. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, to write the Word. The Word that we have, what we study, what we look at, was inspired, God breathed. God's Spirit gave this to us through the pens of man, but the words are not words of man, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. These are things spoke by God. And Ezra was one of these who wrote that, which brings me to number three, and it's where we're going to sit for most of the rest of the time tonight. Ezra is also a depiction of the Holy Spirit. He's a descendant of passion, he's a doer of the word, but he is a depiction of the Holy Spirit. Again, Ezra's name, and don't forget this, get this down, gang. His name means helper. Helper. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you, and He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You know what's interesting about Ezra? When you start to look at this picture of this man and say, alright, if His name is Helper, does He look like, does He remind us of, does He point toward the Holy Spirit? You see things like this. Do you remember who the high priest was who came back in the first wave along with Zerubbabel? What was his name? Yeshua. But when Ezra comes, Yeshua's already gone. Yeshua's already passed away. He's moved on. When our Ezra, our Holy Spirit, our helper came, same thing. Yeshua, our great high priest, Jesus, had already died, was resurrected, ascended to the heavens, and then He sent the Holy Spirit. In the same way. Well, that's coincidental, Rick. Okay, I'm going to give you a lot of coincidences tonight. So just hold on to your hats. Our high priest, Yeshua, had already passed on into the heavens just as our Ezra arrives on the scene, the outpouring of the helper of the Holy Spirit there in Acts chapter 2 on the first day of the church. He comes. And this is what Ezra does. The Holy Spirit comes ready to convict the world. The verse says, John chapter 16, verse 8. He comes to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
And so this Ezra comes. He comes not just ready to teach, but to convict and to stir up. To challenge the people to the life that they're living because they have settled, as we will see. He comes in there to stoke up their faith, just like the Holy Spirit, our helper, does. And I'm telling you, gang, if your faith is waffling or weak or tired or dry, you need the fresh stoking of the Holy Spirit. And it's the only way to get back on track is to seek the Spirit of the living God. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the reality is we go through spans of time. For the people of Israel, 57 years. A span of time where things just settle in. And we get in that place ourselves and we need help. And the helper comes and he begins to kick up the coals. I've said that a couple of times, kicking the coals. There's a picture there I have in my own mind of that. When I was living in Southern California and doing youth ministry, we would often go out to Newport Beach uh, midweek, especially in the summer times. We'd have Bible study out there. We'd bring the guitars out and we'd sing around this massive campfire and then we'd open up the Word and be right there on the beach. And the way you put the campfire out, you know this, you'd kick sand over the coals. Now there's a danger there. There are signs there in Newport Beach, especially for families and young kids, not to kick the coals the next day because some of those coals buried under the sand would still be smoldering could be burning hot. Kids were known to burn their feet on those coals, so they were to stay out of those fire pits. This is what happens with us. It's not that the fire goes out. You know, it's not that we completely lose faith and fall apart. Sometimes it's just that the coals have been buried. The stuff of life begins to pile up on top of us, and we're just smoldering there. You believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. You going to be there Sunday? Yeah, I'll be there Sunday. I'm just not feeling it. So we need someone to come kick the coals. You boot those coals up out of the sand and get some fresh air. What is the Holy Spirit? But the, the ruach, the pneuma, which means breath or, or wind. You get some air, some oxygen on those coals and they will flame up. That's what we need. We need to get the coals kicked a little bit. That's what Ezra does. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Second half of verse 6. It says, And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Note that the helper goes before the king on the behalf of the people. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Ezra goes to the king on the behalf of his people. Our Ezra, our Holy Spirit, goes to the Father. He intercedes on our behalf. Romans 8.26 The Spirit helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Isn't that just what Ezra did? He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He goes to King Artaxerxes. The helper comes before the king. By the way, right now, in this place, the Spirit of God is praying through you. You think, really? Really? What? Yeah. While you're listening to the Word, you're digesting the Word, the Spirit is taking the Word and praying it through you. He is interceding for you with unutterable words. You don't even know maybe what to pray. You might not even realize you are praying. But when you are connected to the Lord, when you are connected to the Spirit, I believe that He prays through you. He searches the hearts to know what the mind of the Spirit is. So he's, he's here and He's moving among us and He's tapping in. You know, what are you thinking? What's Carol got on her mind? You know, what's Spencer thinking about? What's Danny doing right now? What, what's going on in here? What new truths are coming to light in Him that now I can pray back to the Father to, to impart to His heart 
to implant in his heart that he can take and, and begin to give. I mean, it's just a dynamic that's, that's phenomenal. And we need to realize that. I've said this before. When we stop worship, when we stop and we open up the Bible, worship has not stopped. Have we suddenly cut ourselves off from the Lord to enter into the college classroom? No. We are still in the same place with the Lord and He is still here. He hasn't gone anywhere. He is still at work in your heart and in my heart, searching, listening, interceding, groaning unutterable things to the Lord. So Ezra goes before the king on behalf of the people, verse 7, some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem because the good hand of his God was upon him. And verse 10 tells us, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. As we've already noted, Ezra was a teacher at heart. He was a teaching priest, teaching pastor, as it were. And this is another great value of the Spirit of God. I think someone's car is going off out there. Is it? Maybe it's my house. I don't know. I'll try to ignore that. <laughs> if it is my house, Russ, would you go put it out? Thanks. Ezra is a teacher at heart. The Holy Spirit is a teacher at heart. John 14.26 The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, this is important. I've talked many times over the past six years that the Spirit and the Word are both critical to the health of a believer and a fellowship. Spirit and Word. Spirit and Word. I want you to understand this. Let's push this a little further tonight to understand what does that really mean. Ezra is a doer of the Word. We've already seen that. Verse 10 shows us how he was a doer of the Word. In, In three easy words. Study, practice, teach. Verse 10, read it again. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. So a doer of the Word, that's what you are. Studied, practiced becoming a teacher. Let me explain. Ezra was studied in the Word. People from time to time ask me, they go, Rick, okay, how do you, how do you prepare for Bible study? And what commentaries do you use? I mean, you know, I'd like to get dialed into that. What, do you have some kind of Bible study software that you use that, that you would recommend? And, and I'll have that conversation and I'll, I'll recommend that to people. And people will ask, are there other Bible teachers you listen to? And there are. And I'll give you their names and you're welcome to you know, download, go listen to them, people that inspire me. But I want you to understand something here, and it's critically important. I might get great insight from a commentary. I might get a nugget of truth that I had never seen before from Bible study software. But revelation comes from the Spirit of God. The real revelation, and what I'm talking about is the stuff that is we're teaching and we're studying through the Word, and even what we're talking about here, Ezra as a picture of the Holy Spirit. Where does that come from? It's revelation that comes from the Spirit of God, not from the books of man. And we've got to understand, it's so important, how do you study the Word of God? You open up the Bible and you begin to make inquiry of the Holy Spirit. You get into a conversation. Okay, Lord, I don't get this at all. 
Why is this here? Why is this so important? I need you to show me what's going on. This is the conversation I have day in and day out. Every time I open up to study, whether it's for a Wednesday or a Sunday or some other opportunity to teach, the first thing I do is I open up the Word and say, Lord, what do you have for me? As I'm reading through, and and I've shared this before, I have questions that pop up that I even ask as if I was asking myself, as if you were asking me while the Bible study was going on. These are questions that I ask as I'm going through, and I'm asking the Spirit. I'm not asking Harry Ironside. He's been dead for years. J. Vernon McGee, he's in the grave. Great Bible commentary writers, but I can't have conversation with them. You open the Word and you make inquiry. The word there, study. Ezra had set his heart to study the law. The word there in the Hebrew is derash, and it means to inquire. He inquired of the law. Well, who did Ezra inquire of the law to? To the writer of the law, the giver of the law, to the Spirit of God. And that's how, that's the best Bible study tool that I can offer you tonight. If you want to understand the Word of God, man, open it up and pray it. Open it up and inquire of the Spirit. What does this mean? What are you saying? What do you want me to understand? I don't get this. Show me that. Let the Spirit be your teacher. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 in the King James Version says, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. And so once again, here we are. We find the Word and the Spirit. We find them intertwined. Jesus said, as Les shared earlier, John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit. And they are life. The word I've spoken is spirit and life. Now, I've gotten into this conversation. Some would say, well, Rick, is the word for word there, is it logos, the written word, or is it rima, the spoken word? And there are two words that are used for the word word in the Bible, logos and rima. Logos being typically used to refer to scripture or the written word, and, and rima for the spoken word although Logos is far more than the written word because Jesus is the word and the word was made flesh and came and lived among us so it's obviously not just this Logos is John chose the Greek word Logos to express the mind of God something that's inexpressible but is it the written word or is it the spoken word and what's interesting to me is Jesus doesn't seem to differentiate between the two it doesn't matter the word is the word whether it's something God has spoken to you or it is something that is in the pages. Let me put it this way. Whether it comes from the pages of Scripture or the promptings of the Holy Spirit, it is the Word of God. The two, however, will always be confirming. They will always intertwine. They will always be uniform in presenting God's will. You're not going to get a prompting of the Holy Spirit that contradicts what we have in the pages of Scripture. That's the ballast. and You know this. Bible students, you know this. That's the ballast. That's how you test all things. I think I have a prompting of the Spirit. Okay, is it biblical? If it is, good chance that it's a prompting of the Holy Spirit. That's how you know. But the two are intertwined. People sometimes, and especially in this day and age, I hear it a lot, they get very excited about the spoken word as if it's better than the written word. Be careful with that. It's not one over the other. It's all His word. You don't elevate one above the other. You don't say, well, God, you spoke this to me, but it says this here, and I like what you spoke better. It doesn't work that way. It's His Word. John 16, verse 13 says, When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. I think that's interesting. You want to know what's coming? He'll let you know. 
And as a matter of fact, He has many times in, in detailing and helping us understand prophecy. He will glorify Me, Jesus says, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. So some will say, well, I'm not into Bible study. I'm into the flow of the Spirit. Others will say, I'm not into that Holy Spirit stuff. I'm into the Word. Both people need to understand you cannot separate the two. One of the biggest problems in the church today is trying to separate the two as if they were two separate entities and they are not. They come together, the Spirit and the Word, for the life and health of a believer and a fellowship and the church. Pages of Scripture, promptings of the Spirit. Ezra was studied in the Word. Secondly, Ezra was practiced with the Word. What does that look like, to be practiced with the Word? How how does that work? I want to show you something here. I I find this fascinating. Open your Bibles quickly. Turn over, keep your finger there, and turn over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. Just a little practical application here for you tonight. Ephesians chapter 5. What does it mean to be practiced with the Word? What does that look like? In essence, while you're turning there, it means the Word of God will have practical impact on your life. It means if you're in the Word, it's going to affect you. It is going to change you. It is going to alter your behavior, your mindset, your attitudes. Practical impact. Watch this. Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 18. Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. It's also disappointing. Anyway, <laughs> just throw that in there. But be filled with the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. I'll tell you what, for those of you who, who drink, and I'm going to tell you whether or not you should, the Bible, you know, Jesus drank wine, and it's a whole other topic for another time. If you drink, what would you rather be full of? Alcohol or the Holy Spirit? And so... If you're out to dinner and you have that nice glass of wine and you're thinking about the second, how about pausing and thinking, I think I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come for the rest of the evening. You know, you've had that beer at the football game and you're looking for the second. How about saying, I think I'd rather be a little more clear-headed in the Spirit or not even to drink at all. Don't get drunk, Paul says with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit so much better. But he goes on, he says, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And he says in verse 22, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. He goes down, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. Now I'm not doing a verse for verse thing here, I just want to give you a picture. And he goes and he talks about husbands and wives as a picture of the church. And Jesus. Down in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, verse 4, don't provoke your children to anger, anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. He goes all the way down, and do you see what he's doing here? He's giving what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit... Husbands, you're going to love your wives as Christ loved the church. If you're filled with the Spirit, wives, you're going to be subject to your husbands. It's not going to be an issue if you're filled with the Spirit. Children, you're going to obey your parents. Fathers, you're not going to provoke your kids to anger. Slaves, you're going to be obedient. It's going to have practical impact on your life if you're filled with the Spirit. Now skip over to Colossians chapter 3. 
Just a few pages to the right. Colossians chapter 3. Watch this. Paul describes that practical life of spirit-filled people. Look at verse 16 of Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents. Fathers, verse 21, don't exasperate your children. Which is kind of hard because it's fun sometimes. <laughs> Slaves, verse 22, in all things obey those who are your masters. Do you see what's happening here? I mean, does that not sound familiar? It's the same thing. What he said to Ephesus, he's now saying to the church at Colossae, the same exact thing. However, however, in one passage he says, this is the outcome of being filled with the Spirit. In the other passage he says, this is the outcome of letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, that's interesting. It's Spirit here. It's Word here. How does that work? Gang, the Word and the Spirit when combined produce the same outcome. Because it's all from the Lord. Let me explain this another way. And you can go back to Ezra. How can I be filled with the Spirit? The most simple ways you can ask. okay? Because He loves to fill those who ask. He loves to give good things. The Father does. But one other way, how can I be filled with the Spirit? Get into the Word. Well, how do I get into the Word? Be filled with the Spirit. Well, okay, which one is it, Rick? It's both. It's either. Jump in any time. Okay? Jump in. Be led to the Word by the Spirit. Or be led to the Spirit by the Word. See, what's interesting here, God's given us a, a, a practical example of this in Pastor Les and Pastor Rick. Pastor Les came to Jesus and weren't you baptized in the Spirit almost immediately? And through that, the Spirit brought less to the Word. For me, I began in the Word. I began in a church I've shared before that was very hesitant about the Holy Spirit. I began in the Word. You know what happened? The Word led me to the Spirit. I came to the Spirit by the Word. Less came to the Word through the Spirit. It didn't matter which, but we're both there. And we both landed in the same place, two different places, but the same place. It's the power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, both. When the Lord pours out His Spirit, He's spoken His Word, and so the two are a dynamic together. Jump on anywhere you want to. And that's why I'm so big on Bible study, because I know, I know that if you're in the Word for very long, eventually you're going to get baptized in the Holy Spirit, because you're going to see the need, you're going to have the desire, you're going to want the Father to pour His Spirit out on you in a new and fresh way. And I know if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, man, you're going to be hungry for the Word, so we're just going to keep pouring the Word out. The two, the dynamic is both together. And we have, I think, tragically, in 2,000 years of church history and things settling, we have settled the Holy Spirit for this group of people over here and the Word for this group of people over here. And meanwhile, there's the rest of us going, I really would like to have both. That's what the Lord offers to us. That's what He wants for us. That's what it means to be practiced in the Word. To walk it out. To live it out. As as Les said tonight, we're going to pray for each other. We're going to pray the Word. We're going to do this thing. Being biblically based and Spirit-filled are not mutually exclusive. They are mutually inclusive.
And number three, Ezra was a teacher of the Word. Well, I just need to say this. If you are studied in the Word and practiced with the Word, you will be like Ezra, a teacher of the Word. And it doesn't matter if you're sitting up here or not. That's not what it means to be a teacher of the Word. Well, aren't you a teacher, Pastor Rick? Yes, I am. But every one of us are called to teach the Word in the lives that we live. To be ready to give answer. To be diligent. Rightly handling the Word of Truth. Every one of us. Well, that scares me. How do I get there? Very simply, be studied in the Word. Be practiced in the Word. And you will be a teacher of the Word. Because it will overflow. You won't be able to help it. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Your words were found, and I ate them. By the way, Les didn't know I was going to share this verse tonight. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. But that delight, that delight can give you heartburn. What? The Word of God can give you heartburn. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, If I say I will not remember Him or speak anymore in His name, then in my heart His Word becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Jeremiah is frustrated. The weeping prophet. The people aren't listening. He preached the Word. And he's like, I'm just not going to do it anymore. But I have to. Because I'm, it's like I'm on fire inside if I don't. Why? Because he was studied. He was practiced in the Word. He had to be a teacher. That was Jeremiah. Same as Ezra. Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. They're in Acts chapter 4. And they've been told, no more teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. We don't want to hear any more out of your mouths about this, Jesus. And they say, well, <laughs> we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Why? Because the Word's a fire. And it bursts out. It's a divine dynamic, gang. The Lord tells us what to do, and then He gives us the power to do it by His Holy Spirit. Philippians 2.13, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Verse 11. Ezra chapter 7, verse 11. So here's this Ezra. And it says, This is a copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and the Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. Now, we've got another letter. Last week we saw two letters. They were written against the people of Israel, trying to stop the building of the temple. Now here, in chapter 7, we have a third letter, but it's a positive. Artaxerxes has now written a decree allowing Ezra to go back and to stir the people up. Encouraging the people of Israel. This is a good letter. Now, what we're told here in verse 11 is this is a copy of the decree. So the decree was written, Artaxerxes would keep that in the royal archives, and then he had a copy made, and Ezra took the copy with him. It's kind of an Artaxerox, if if you think you might like that. Verse 14. So he takes his copy with him, and the copy says, For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors... That was, you know what? I thought that was really funny. An Artaxerox. A copy, an Artaxerxes with the... You okay? You with me? All right. Art is Xerox. I'm like, that's great. They're going to crack up. (laughs) So verse 14 again, uh, he says, For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Hold on. Did you see something else there? 
Fourth thing to, to note here. He's a descendant of passion, Ezra is. A doer of the word. A depiction of the spirit. And number four. Number four, Ezra is dispatched by the king and his seven counselors. Ezra sees fit to let us know it was, wasn't just the king who sent him, or at least it says here in the writing of Artaxerxes, you are sent by the king and his seven counselors. The helper comes before the king with seven counselors. For those of you who really want to dig in, there's another subtle hint of the Holy Spirit right here. I had never seen this before. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 says, John, writing to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. First time I read that, I went, seven spirits before the throne? I had enough trouble understanding the Trinity. And now there are seven spirits plus Jesus plus plus God. I, I don't get this at all. John, in the book of Revelation, has just given a beautiful description of the triune nature of God. He says... John, from Him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead. That's God the Son. And the seven spirits who are before the throne is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has seven spirits? No. The seven spirits before the throne are a picture, are a description of the Holy Spirit. Look quickly at Isaiah chapter 11. If you turn your Bibles, just they'll fall open somewhere in the middle. Isaiah chapter 11, in verse 2. Chapter 11. Isaiah 11. Now understand that John is a Jew, writing Jewish things with a Jewish mindset in the book of Revelation. I understand it's Christian. I understand it's a New Testament book for the first century church, you know, 80s, 90s, somewhere in the middle of the 90s there. But he's a Jew writing with a Jewish mindset and he says, the seven spirits who are before the throne. Why would he describe the Holy Spirit of the living God in that way? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Speaking of Jesus. Verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength, and knowledge, and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Verse 2 describes the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Seven spirits before the throne. How's your math? If you look at verse 2, you may be saying, "Um, okay, I see six. I see the Spirit of the Lord, and he has wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So I see six. You said there were seven. Let's take this a step further. Exodus chapter 25 describes the lampstand in the temple, what the Jews today will call the menorah. And, and it is the symbol of, of Israel. It's the main symbol of Israel today. If you go on the land, that's the one that, even more than the Jewish star, the star of David, is the menorah. How many lamps are on the lampstand in the temple? Seven. But when you read the description in Exodus 25... The Lord says, I want you to have six branches. Three on one side, three on the other side. Six branches for all seven lamps. Six branches for seven lamps? Where does the seventh lamp go? In the center shaft. What we're seeing in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, is the center shaft is the Holy Spirit. 
And the branches are the ministries of the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before the throne. Ezra, our helper, he comes before the king and his seven counselors. Interesting. Is that another picture? I'm going to say, yeah, I think so. The Holy Spirit gang is the central shaft. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, the fear of the Lord, they branch off of His nature. So we have seven lamps, seven spirits before God's throne, seven counselors in Ezra. Oh, and by the way, what exactly does the lampstand do in the temple? It gives light. It burns. It's filled with oil. Oil, a picture of the Holy Spirit. And it is, by the way, to be continually burning. Those lamps are not to go out. One of the roles of the priest was to keep those lamps lit perpetually, changing out the oil whenever they needed so that the lampstand would stay lit in the temple. When our lamps start to get a little bit dim, what we need is a little more oil. We need more of the Holy Spirit. When we get into those settling times, you want to burn more brightly for the Lord, we need more of His Spirit in our lives. Verse 15. Let's go back to Ezra chapter 7, verse 15. So the letter continues. He's, he he uh, says, I'm going to send you Ezra, and I'm going to send you to bring gold and silver now, verse 15, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. It says, With all the silver and gold which you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and of the priests who offered willingly for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem. With this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls, rams, lambs, and with their grain offerings, their drink offerings, offer them on the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver of gold, you may do according to the will of your God. Also the utensils are given to you for the service of the house of your God. Deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. The rest of your needs for the house of your God, for which you may have occasion to provide, provide it from the royal treasury. Artaxerxes is saying, go ahead, dig in. Whatever you need, take it. It's yours. I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river, that's the Euphrates River, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently, even up to 100 talents of silver, that's about four tons, (laughs) 100 cores of wheat, that's a whole lot of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt as needed, or as prescribed. So whatever amount of salt you need is yours. Whatever is commanded, verse 23, by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of God, the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath (laughs) against the kingdom of the king and his son. So Artaxerxes is kind of covering himself. He knows the history of Israel and their God. So he says, no, no, do whatever you want to do. And uh, make sure your God knows I'm the one who told you to do it. We also inform you, verse 24, that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. That's the first tax exemption right there. Now seriously, it really is. First time that that, uh, the people were tax exempt, that the, the priests, that the pastors were, I really like that idea tax exemption for all pastors. Verse 25, he says, You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all those who know the laws of your God, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Where does wisdom come from? 
Wisdom comes from the Spirit of God. Verse 25, You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of God which is in your hand. You, helper, you who have the wisdom of God. Another indication here that Ezra portrays for us and shows us the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.13, actually verse 12, says, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that you may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Wisdom. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask. Well, where does wisdom come from? It comes from the Spirit of God. The book of um, Proverbs indicates that wisdom was there in the beginning with God. Well, who was there in the beginning with God? Well, Jesus was. The Word was with God and the Word was God in the very beginning. We know that. And in the beginning, we see in Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit was there brooding over the face of the deep. The Spirit is wisdom. And if you desire wisdom in your innermost being, then you've got to go to the Spirit of the living God. You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God, which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges. He puts them in charge of all this. Amazing. And down there at the end of verse 25, and you may teach anyone who is ignorant. Verse 26, whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. Okay, I got a problem right now. Uh, the Holy Spirit wouldn't do that. Sorry, not the Holy Spirit of my God wouldn't go around executing people. Would He? I'd ask Ananias and Sapphira. In the early days of the church, they conspired together. People were selling houses and land. Tell us Barnabas did this in Acts chapter 5. Barnabas sold all of his land in a house and just gave the money to the church. If you want to do that, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> And along come Ananias and Sapphira and they say, hey, let's, let's sell, we got an extra house, let's sell it. And let's give the money to the church, but let's not give all of it. Let's keep some of it. But let's tell them we're giving all of it. It was all just to make themselves look holy and righteous. But in so doing, they lied. And so Peter questions Ananias. Ananias brazenly says, no, we gave you all the money that we made. And Peter said, you're lying. And Ananias drops dead. So then Sapphira comes in. She doesn't know what's just happened with her husband. Acts chapter 5, verse 9, she repeats the lie to Peter, and he says to her, listen to this, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And she didn't even have time to erp or scream or make any noise whatsoever. Boom! She hit the deck. And they carried her out. And we're told in Acts chapter 5, great fear came on the people of God, on the church in those days. People realized what happened and just... I mean, can you imagine here at the British Christian Fellowship if that happened? If someone came up on a Sunday morning and I said, hey, um, I know you told us that you gave something here. Did did you really give all that? Did you give all of it? No, yeah, yeah, we did. Really? Well, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. Boom. What do you think that would do to attendance? Which is why I like to do those things in private, you know. <laughs> Great fear came on the whole church. How? Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord executed judgment. And we're told He will do that. 
Ezra is given permission by the king, the helper is given permission to execute judgment. What does John tell him? What does Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? When he comes, he's going to convict the world of sin. He's going to convict the world of judgment. He's going to convict the world of righteousness. We've got to not separate out so much the triune nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are still all aspects of the one and same God, unified in judgment and in grace. In wrath and in mercy. All three are the one. You don't say, well, I like Jesus, but I'm not so sure about the God of the Old Testament. I like the Holy Spirit because He's cool, you know, kind of working in me and stuff. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, is the Spirit of God. And I think a healthy dose of fear when approaching Him is, is probably a good idea. Verse 27, this is Ezra's response to the letter. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this into the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended loving, loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. Then I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Now, quickly, before we head on, I love this about Ezra. He receives this decree from Artaxerxes, and he doesn't say, what a great king is Artaxerxes. The first thing out of his mouth is, blessed be the Lord. God did this. God did this. Island County did not give us the temporary use permit. God did this. Whoever is hired on to, to work in the building project for the British Christian Fellowship is not the one who brings about the building of, of that house. God is. You are not the one in your life who achieved great things. God did this. Blessed be the Lord who accomplishes what He accomplishes through you. That's something else the Holy Spirit does as He praises and honors Christ. He will always lift up Jesus. He doesn't lift up Himself. He lifts up Jesus. In the same way that the Father, that the Son lifted up the Father. And this is how we see in the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit lift each other up. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Well, the Spirit-filled, Bible-based man of God takes a copy of the decree, his artist Xerox, with him and heads for Jerusalem. Throw it out there one more time for you. And in chapter 8, verse 1, I know the time, but stick with me. Now these are the heads of their father's households and their genealogical enrollment of those who went up with me, Ezra's writing, from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. And then he begins to give a list. I'm not going to go through all the names there, but all the way down to verse 20, he gives a list of the names of the people who came with him. And we're told in verse 3, Zechariah and 150 males with him. In verse 4, Elihonai and 200 males with him. In verse 5, Shechaniah and 300 males. In verse 6, 50 males. In verse 7, 70 males. If you add this all up, you get down to the end of verse 20, and what you get, the number of returnees who go with Ezra back to Jerusalem in this second wave, 1,772. How many went back in the first wave? Do you remember roughly? 49,000. Nearly 50,000 went back with Zerubbabel and we said, well, that was kind of small because two million stayed behind. Now in the second great wave, this movement back to Jerusalem, 1,700, just under 1,800 people went. That's a tiny little contingency. It's a fraction of the original group that went back. It's roughly less than 4% by comparison. But it's great. 
Because they were not going to rebuild and they were not going to resettle. They were going to revive. And it doesn't take a lot of people to revive when the Spirit of God is with you. Ezra could have gone by himself and it would have been enough if the Spirit of God is with him, is with you. Can the Lord, can the Lord change this region with one person? I believe He can. How about two? How about 25 or 30? Can the Lord change the face of northern Washington with just a handful of people? He can if the Helper goes before them. If the Helper is with them. And the Helper was with them. The Spirit was with them. Verse 15. Let's get back and look at this. I assembled, Ezra says, them at the river that runs to Ahava. This is still in Babylon. Where we camped for three days and I observed the people and the priests and I did not find any Levites there. He called for a movement of people to come back with him. No Levites. Well, you need Levites for the temple services. And so I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnatan, Yarib, Elnatan, another Elnatan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnatan, a third Elnatan. I guess it was a popular name back in that day. These were all teachers. And I sent them to Edo, the leading man at the place Casaphia, and I told them to say to Edo and his brothers, the temple servants at the place Casaphia, that is, to bring ministers to us for the house of our God. If we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. We need Levites to go with us. Verse 18, according to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us the man of insight of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and brothers, 18 men. And Hashabiah and Jeshaiah of the sons of Merari and his brothers and their sons, 20 men. And 220 of the temple servants whom David and the princes had given for the service of the Levites, all of them designated by name. I go back and quickly pick this up. Gain, there is here a way evident in these verses to gain favor with the Lord. Watch this, verse 21. There, then, I proclaimed a fast at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek Him, seek from Him a safe journey for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek Him, but His power and anger are against all those who forsake Him. Do you hear what Ezra is saying? We could have asked for protection from the king. We could have done it the world's way. We're not going to. We're going to do it God's way because it is to the glory of God if we make this trip back safely. We're not going to lean on the world to make it happen. We're going to trust in the Lord. And we're going to talk more about that Sunday morning. He says in verse 23, So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter and He listened to our entreaty. And again, we'll pick up more. How do we gain favor with the Lord? How do we, like Ezra, have this great relationship with the Father so that there's such great trust? Talk about that on Sunday. Verse 24, it says, Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah and Hashabiah, uh, with them ten of their brothers. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the utensils and the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel present had offered. He weighs us all out to them, we're told. And uh, let me just go on here. Um, verse 26. Then I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, and silver utensils worth 100 talents, and 100 gold talents, and 20 gold bowls worth 1,000 derricks, and two utensils of fine shiny bronze, precious as gold, 
And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the utensils are holy, and the silver and the gold are a free will offering to the Lord God of your fathers. So watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leading priests, the Levites and the heads of the fathers' household of Israel at Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So you see what he's doing here? All the treasures that Artaxerxes sent with him, he's now entrusting to these guys. Saying this is for the house of the Lord. You guys are responsible for this. Keep an eye. You guys are counting the money (laughs) at the end of Sunday service. Here it is. You're responsible to get this where it needs to go, to the right place. Okay? So the priests, verse 30, and the Levites accepted the weighed out silver and gold and the utensils to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God and then we journeyed from the river Ahava on the twelfth of the first month to go to Jerusalem and the hand of our God was over us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way we don't even hear what those are we just know they were delivered I think it's going to be like that for us when we get to heaven we're not going to remember exactly how the enemy attacked or what those ambushes were but we'll know we were delivered from them. And that's what he has to say about it. Verse 32, Then we came to Jerusalem. We remained there three days. On the fourth day, the silver and gold and the utensils were weighed out in the house of our God into the hand of Merimot, the son of Uriah the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Yotzebad, the son of Yeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Benui. There was one more thing here that is definitely worth noting. I'm sure you can find more in your study. One more thing worth noting in this stunning portrayal of the Holy Spirit by Ezra, the helper. Something Ezra was sent to do. Now think about this. What did Ezra bring with him to Jerusalem? Gold, silver, Wheat, wine, oil, salt, bulls, rams, lambs. It's all listed there in the chapter. All these things offered freely and willingly. So here's Ezra, this descendant of passion, this doer of the word, this depiction of the Holy Spirit, dispatched by the king and his seven counselors. Number five in your notes, listen to this. Ezra the helper is a deliverer of gifts. He's a deliverer of gifts. He delivers the gifts of the king to the people. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what the Helper does. He delivers gifts. The spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.7 You can read all of 1 Corinthians 12 to see the detailing of this. But just this one verse. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The Helper comes along. Ezra. And he brings gifts with him. The spiritual gifts. And they're yours and they're mine. And they're freely given And they're freely offered, but they're determined by Ezra. He determines where they go. A certain amount of these go into the temple treasury and to the temple, and others are for other purposes. Ezra makes that determination, just like the Holy Spirit does. Our helper determines who gets what gift, when, why, and how. He delivers the gifts. Why did Ezra bring these things? Why did he deliver these gifts? Look back at chapter 7, verse 27. I just I love this verse. Let's land here. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this into the king's heart. Watch this to adorn the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. Why did Ezra deliver the gifts? It was to adorn the temple. Now the temple was built. It was already constructed. 
It was functioning. They were offering sacrifices. It was in operation. But the gifts were now given to adorn the temple. Don't you know, Paul says, that your body is a temple of the Lord? Don't you realize that's what's going on here? A temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own. You come to faith in Jesus. This is why I said before, the book of Ezra is history, but it's also your story. It's my story. We come to Jesus and we are now a temple of the Lord, a temple of the Holy Spirit. We receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But there's more. Now the adornment comes to the temple in the form of gifts that are given to you to be adorned. To adorn the house of the Lord. The gifts of the Spirit are our spiritual adornment. I'm going to read one, one more thing to you quickly. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But I just love the way Paul writes this here, what he says. He says, We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he says, you know, my physical body starts to wear down. And it does. You know, it's not what it used to be. It's not as strong as it used to be. I have been suffering back pain I'm not saying this for sympathy. This is just the reality. When you're 45 years old and you have a 1-year-old and a 4-year-old in the house, you are going to suffer back pain. When I was 25, it didn't matter. My back was strong as an ox. I could bounce the kids on my knee. I could carry them around. Well, I'm doing those same things now. And it hurts. It's painful. Why? Because this temple's wearing down. This body's not what it used to be. It's not as strong as it used to be. But you know what? I don't care. I am not worried about it. Even if this thing is completely torn down the day that I die. If I die before He comes. Guess what? I have a temple that's being built for me right now. A place reserved for me. Where my spirit will go. And this old body is going to one day be glorified. So I'm not worried about it. He says, indeed, in this house we groan. (laughs) Yeah? When was the last time you woke up and went, oh, <laughs> These are the sounds I make in the morning. Morning. Oh. <laughs> in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as having put it on, we will not be found naked. And that's good news. <laughs> For indeed, while we, were <laughs> while we are in this tent... We groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to, but to be clothed. And he says, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now listen to this. He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. That word pledge, it's like financial consignment. You go to a store and you say, I really like those clothes. I'm going to put them on consignment. We don't do that so much today. We just put it on the card. But, you know, years ago, you would put things on consignment. You'd say, I'm going to pay a little at a time. And the Lord says, that's what I've done with you. I've given you my Holy Spirit. Your glorified body, your heavenly clothing is on consignment. Until then, you are to be adorned by the Spirit. Until you go home, the clothing I have for you now, even the decoration that I have, Your adornment is the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts that He gives. That's what we're called to wear. In one place, Peter says to women, you know, ladies, don't don't adorn yourselves with, you know, things hanging off your ears and the way you do your hair and the makeup and all that. And that's fine. It's not a bad thing to have the things hanging off your ears. 
But Peter says that's not that's not your spiritual adornment. Your spiritual adornment is the Holy Spirit and the gifts that He gives you. That's what you need to be focused on. That's what you got to be wearing. That's what the Lord has for us. And He's given us the Spirit as a pledge so that, no, I don't have my heavenly outfit now, but man, I'm adorned by the Holy Spirit. This is, this is what I'm wearing. And by the way, that down payment of our heavenly consignment, gang, when we begin to wear our down payment, when we are spiritually adorned as the temple was adorned, Guess what? We start to look different. Even physically. Even physically, we start to look different. What do you mean? People look at you and they go, What is it? What's going on in you? What's different about you today? There's something going on. There's something adorning you. That's unique. It's different. What am I wearing now? Gang, we live in this culture that is obsessed with look and fashion. I have a 12-year-old son in junior high, and he's just starting to get it. I was going to wear this hat. You know, I have this cool hat, he tells me today. I won't wear it anymore. Why don't you wear the cool hat anymore? Because the kids saw Hannah wearing it on the bus last week. Oh, you wear your sister's hat? So I can't wear the hat anymore. I'm like, who cares? Does the hat look cool on you? Well, yeah, but it's my sister's hat. I can't wear my sister's hat. Well, that's the way the world looks at it. Well, what's the fact? What's the latest thing? I've got to make sure that I'm up to date and I look right and I've got the right makeup and pounds of it and I've got to have my hair done right. And, you know, in my case, none of it matters anymore. <laughs> what is your adornment? Gang, the gifts, the gifts of the Spirit. You want to dress up for the Lord? Kids had the His Coming dance here last night. They all got dressed up and it was great. Very cool. And the whole point was an alternative to the proms and homecomings and His coming. But you know what what looked better than anything else? When those kids were worshiping Sunday morning? You could see the adornment of the Spirit on them? That's what we're called to wear. That's what we've been given. Now, very end of the chapter here, verse 34 tells us everything was numbered and weighed and all the weight was recorded at that time. The gifts were brought in. They counted it out. They made sure it was exactly what was given and, and, and the right amounts weighed, counted, recorded, and guess what? We are going to be numbered and weighed. You are going to be numbered and weighed based on how you use the spiritual gifts. The gifts the Spirit has given you. You're going to be numbered. You're going to be weighed. You're going to be tested. Second Corinthians 5.10 we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There's a recompense coming. I'm going to be judged based on how I've used the spiritual gifts? What if I haven't used them right? Am I going to hell? I mean, have I, is that it? No. We're not talking about salvation. You have your salvation. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Let me see a show of hands. you believe in Jesus Christ? Put the hand up. Guess what? We're in a room full of... John, I'm assuming that you believe in Jesus, but you're just reading another verse somewhere. So I'm I'm going to give you grace on that one tonight. (laughs) Saved people! Saved people! Some of you will... Well, I hope not, but you could die before you ever even really understand what your spiritual gift was. Does that mean you go to hell? No! You're saved! Yeah, the seal of the Spirit is a pledge. 
So what's he talking about here where we're going to come before the judgment seat of Christ and be recompensed for our deeds, whether good or bad? It means I am going to be judged based on how I use the spiritual gifts and that judgment is going to be rewards, different rewards for different gifts and how I've lived my life. It's not your salvation. You're saved. You're going to be there. But you will be rewarded once there based on how you've lived and how you've used the gifts that have been given to you. There's a weighing in of how we've handled the gifts of the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.13, and I love this verse, each man's work will become evident. The day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. Praise God. If any man's work is burned up, that means you've been building with stuff that's not eternal. Your portfolio is going to burn. And it's not going to be worth any. You think it wasn't worth anything when the, when the stock market took a hit this last year? It's not going to be worth nothing in eternity. It's going to burn right up. Gone. Bye-bye. But if any work that you've done remains, you'll receive a reward. If it's burned up, you're going to suffer loss. And I like this. But he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So there are going to be some people coming into heaven with their tail ends on fire. Oh, oh, oh I got here. <laughs> I didn't do much, but I believe, man, and I'm here. <laughs> you know? That's grace. Grace will save you. But there are rewards. There are Rewards based on the use of the gifts. You have all, we have all been given gifts by the Lord. Spiritual gifts. How are we going to use those gifts? That's the question. What would happen? What would happen if the church simply embraced our spiritual gifts as given by the Holy Spirit? What would happen in this world if every individual in the church belonging to the Lord said, I know I've got spiritual gifts, Lord... I'm going to use them for you. Lord, I'm not sure what my gifts are. I'm asking you to show me, reveal it to me so that I can be of service to you. If everybody did that, wow. Then the world would be turned upside down. Then the world would be changed in a way never before seen. What about right here, this fellowship? What if just this group of us here tonight determined that we were going to seek and live out the spiritual gifts that God's given us? What would happen in this region? I'll tell you what would happen. Verse 35. The exiles who had come from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. There would be sacrifice. We would offer ourselves to the Lord. Twelve bulls for all of Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats for a sin offering, and all as a burnt offering to the Lord. Verse 36. Then they delivered the king's edicts to the king's satraps, and the governors in the provinces beyond the river, and they, that is all of the governors and kings and the, and the non-Israelis, non-Israelite people, and they supported the people and the house of God. Listen, we talk a lot about culture persecuting the church. It's kind of a mantra, I think, in Christianity today. The culture's against us, we've got to fight back, and we do need to take a stand in this culture. Now, Bill O'Reilly every year loves to point out the Christmas wars. Culture's against us again. They're trying to make us put away our Christmas trees and our manger scenes and we've got to fight back. Okay, that's great. I understand that. But do you realize that there is something that would happen if all of us were functioning in our spiritual gifts by the power of the Holy Spirit, the culture around us would sit up and take notice and they would support what was going on. Really? 
Acts chapter 2, verse 46 says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. What were they doing? Moving in the Holy Spirit. These people were alive in the Spirit of God. Living, loving, joyful, peaceful. Go down the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Man, they had it. And as they lived it out, the Bible tells us they had favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. When the gifts of the Helper are manifest, the support is there. And it may look different in different ways, but I'm telling you, gang, if we were walking in the gifts of the Spirit in this fellowship, not only would we have support, and we've already seen it, I've mentioned the county several times, we should not have temporary use permits. Why do we have them? Because I believe this fellowship is beginning to walk in the power of the Spirit. And the county looked at that and said, okay, what can we do? How can we work with these people? This was not a battle. This was not duking it out. This was just, what can we do? And we got the support of our governmental agency, (laughs) Island County, to do what's going on. Little thing, it's not a huge thing. But recognize it, gang, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're trusting in the Lord. He'll take care of the support that we need when we need it, from where we need it. But there will also be massive evangelization. The Lord adds to their number day by day those who are being saved. Hmm. So here comes Ezra, and he is on fire. And we're going to see in chapters 9 and 10, the people of Israel have been on a slow fade. How do we avoid that? How do we not end up there ourselves? I can only think of one way. 2 Timothy 1.6 Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you, Paul said to Timothy, through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power and love and discipline. We need a stirring. We need the Spirit to come kick the coals and warm us up. We need to be a people who are willing to take the risk of saying, Lord, What are the gifts you have for me? And I will walk in them. Gang, all we got to do is ask. Our Ezra is here to help. Let's pray. Father, we ask beginning tonight, just those who are gathered here, this company of believers, this fellowship, we ask, Lord, that You will pour out Your Spirit in new and fresh ways, that You will kindle afresh Lord, some of the gifts that You gave years ago, I pray will be kindled afresh in this fellowship. I pray there will be new gifts given as You determine, Father, by Your Spirit, as You will, give to each accordingly. But Father, would You just begin to move and pour out, and we're here with our arms open saying, Give, Lord, and we receive. We receive what You are pouring out. We, we want to walk in Your Spirit. We want to live by Your Spirit. We want to be adorned by Your gifts. Father, just show us how we are open and ready vessels to be used by You in this season, in these last days. Holy Spirit, come among us and have Your way with us. In Jesus' name, Amen.